Today, I would like to speak to you on the topic of the fact about heaven. Okay, that's the, that's the main thing that we want to talk about. But what I'd like to do is motivate us, not just you. I need motivation as much as you do in regard to the gospel by two primary things, although we're going to talk about some other things, but two primary things. One is the gospel is the one criteria that's going to determine whether people spend eternity in heaven or hell. How they respond to the gospel is the final decision-making thing. And so it is extremely important to us to do what we have to do. What I'm, what I'm talking about here is motivation to say things for Christ, to witness, to do things, to find ways, to be creative. You think about how we humans express our creativity, and we do it in a zillion ways, but we don't usually, we aren't usually as fervent about the gospel and applying the, the skills, the abilities, the interests that God has given us to getting the gospel out. I, mean, there, I, I hope to talk about that a little bit this afternoon as well, but I'd just like to remind us that the primary reason why we need to do this from a, an eternal perspective is that the fact is the gospel decides, uh, people's response to the gospel decides whether it's heaven or the lake of fire. The other thing is, and I think this is underemphasized uh, under uh, under in, in my own heart, I don't know, I couldn't say in your church or couldn't say in anybody else's church, but the fact is that there are great rewards for obedience to the scriptures. And I don't think I've ever gotten a firm grasp on the concept of rewards in heaven. And I don't think I do now. But I do think that it's a very powerful motivator. And I, I, don't, I don't wish to be at all sacrilegious in the way I say this, but God is not an unrighteous employer in the sense that God realizes that rewards motivate. And it's a good thing to be motivated by rewards. It's not carnal. It's not unbiblical. It's not wicked or anything else. And so it's not at all wrong to do what you can do with the gifts God has given you in the place where you are to actually gain more rewards in eternity. That's exactly what God was talking about when he said to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's a good thing. Actually, it's commanded. It's not just, it's not optional, but it is commanded. Now, as we think about these things, heaven needs to be on our minds. And if it's not on our minds, then we are not, we're not worried about heaven and hell. We're not worried about the rewards we'll get. And the scriptures have taught us, the Lord has taught us through the scriptures to think on the things that are above. I'm going to read several passages. I'm going to move this up. My coat is rubbing it or something. I don't know what I'm doing, but I all kinds of scratching. Okay. Um, seek, this is in Luke chapter 12, verse 31. But rather seek the kingdom of God. Of course, he was talking about the, the lilies, and he's talking about the birds, and not to be worried. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's Luke 12, verse 31. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms, Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so 
I, I just want to encourage us to think about heaven, think about what's coming. When we are young, uh, I would say that means up to about 45. That, And I, I'm just thinking about my own mind, when some of my thoughts shifted gears, so to speak. And I would say that up to about 45, um, you think that there still is time to do something. After 45, you begin to realize, wow, um, you know, it's about over. <laughs> and and it's because you just realize the time is going really fast. And what you're going to do, you better do quickly. And so if we can think about what is beyond our death or the Lord's return when we get to go to be with him in heaven, that will just do an amazing thing for us to help us to do what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to be motivated. He wants us to care that people are going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. He wants us to care that we are going to be rewarded in heaven for what we've done his way, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, and that we're going to suffer loss. In other words, we're going to, we're going to be ashamed. As a matter of fact, you often hear that there are no tears in heaven. And later, as I was reading the scriptures, I realized that's not true. The Lord will wipe the tears from their eyes. And, and so there will be no permanent tears in heaven. What would those tears be? Could it be the people we wanted to see? Could it be the things that we wished we had done? Could it be the things we wished we had done right? Or better? Or with a pure heart? And we didn't. Thankfully, the Lord loves us anyway. And he's going to take us anyway. But there will be tears in heaven. And I think that we should be motivated both by the souls of those that need him, everybody, and by the fact that none of us like pain. And emotional pain is in many ways worse than physical pain. And there's going to be some emotional pain in heaven until the tears are wiped away. And some of that, I think, is going to be our failures. Um, I don't know. The scriptures don't clearly say what that is, but that's what I think. Matthew six, nineteen to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now, I think in many cases we should understand the if as a since. Okay? I'm not saying it should be translated that way in our Bible, but you should understand that that language that it was written in is not the same as our language, and it has a little different meaning. And so you can understand this as since you have then been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. I would point out to you that in the scriptures there are commands sometimes where it says, do this but don't do this, and it's exclusive. It absolutely means precisely what it says. Other times there's a, there's a, uh, a rhetorical tool being used where it's just an emphasis. When Paul was sent uh, not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, that's a rhetorical tool is being used there. That's priority. That is not saying do not baptize. Um, instead, it's saying in comparison to the outward sign, the inward change wrought by the gospel is infinitely more important. And it is. Because the baptism is not going to determine where you spend eternity, but your response to the gospel is. And so, you have to, when you look at the scriptures, you have to find out, figure out what it's saying. Um, when the Lord says to give things away, 
Does that mean to give everything away? It doesn't always mean that, and we know that from other places. And so often what the scriptures are doing is they are readjusting our priorities. They're not telling us what is a no-no and what is a, a necessary thing. Sometimes that's the case. In this case, when it comes to our affections, it is exclusive. The affections have to be above, and they have to be exclusively above. It doesn't mean you can't like anything here, but it means that your mind has to be on that which is in heaven, not that which is on earth. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. I'll just quote a little bit of verse 18. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so, for us as believers, we need to develop this ability to, by God's grace and through His Word and His Spirit, to be able to perceive the things that can't be seen with the eyes. Be concerned about that which can't be seen with our normal way of, of our senses. And instead be concerned about the things that God has taught our spirits to be sensitive to. And that is important. If we can think about heaven, we will be better at fulfilling God's Christ's last command, which was, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In order to do that, we've got to be thinking about heaven. You cannot be focused on your life here and, and accomplish any part of the Great Commission. It's not going to happen. Your affections have to be above. If you are born again, you want them to be above. But if you are born again, it's not automatic. It is a command. Set your affections. It's a choice. It's hard. And often in the scriptures, the Lord gives us illustrations that are actually process illustrations. Walking. Okay? It, it, it's okay to understand that as being our lifestyle. But lifestyle is not an event. It's a series of choices. And walking in Christ is not an event. It's a series of choices. And so we have to accept the fact that that's how we need to make our mind on heaven. Okay, you may go a day, and you may not think about heaven. I may not think about heaven. I may not care about the loss that day. That's bad. But that doesn't mean that tomorrow I should do what I did yesterday. It means I should begin the walk again. I paused. I was wrong. I grieved the Holy Spirit. And it's time to focus again on heaven. The gospel, what we are talking about, is, is that Jesus died, that he rose again, and that, I mean, that he was buried and that he rose again. He died because of our sins. If it were not necessary to pay an infinite price, the infinite sacrifice would not have had to have been sacrificed. And so once, when we deal with these things with people and with ourselves, we have to realize the gravity of the situation. It really was a bad situation to be lost in sin. It really was hopeless. And not because of this world. The fact is you can be hopeless in this world without Christ and have a better life than a believer. It's possible. And, and you, can, you can study Ecclesiastes and see that that's possible. You can study other, and you can look around and see that that's possible, at least from what we can view. Often we know that those who don't know Christ are miserable. But there are those who do not know Christ who do not realize that they're miserable. In other words, their feelings say, this is great, this is what I want, and I'm happy with what I got. And uh, so we've got to look beyond that and realize sin, an offense against God, 
requires a sacrifice. Death, the penalty, Jesus did it. According to the scriptures, he was buried to prove the veracity of what God knows ahead of time and what he has revealed. The, the burial of Christ increases our confidence in the scriptures. Because for us, you know, if we were thinking of this, why couldn't we just say that, well, why, why couldn't Christ just have died and immediately have resurrected? But, but it was predicted hundreds of years earlier that he would be buried. And so the prediction coming true is one more of our evidences that our Lord does not lie. So when he tells us about our sin, we know he's telling us the truth. When he tells us about the burial, we know he's telling us the truth. He tells us about the resurrection according to the scriptures. It had to be that way. And of course, when this says according to the scriptures, Paul was referring to the Old Testament. And so the resurrection is predicted in the Old Testament of, of the Lord. And of course, they were very much blinded to that. Many people now are very blinded to that. But it was all there to build our confidence that the God who has progressively revealed himself is concerned about getting rid of sin by a substitute who is perfect. I don't know if this will mean anything to you, but I, I, I've often thought, how is it that Jesus could be dead on the cross for three, year, for three hours, but a sinner who dies in his sin has to, to be eternally lost? And I think the answer to that is that Jesus Christ is infinite. And so Jesus Christ, a, a temporal punishment, a punishment limited in time, was still infinite for him. And so he completely paid the sacrifice of everyone for all time with that sacrifice. Furthermore, you and I know that what was so bad about his death was the separation from the Father. That was eternal death. For God the Son to be separated from God the Father was death. And of course, those who end up being, because of their own choice to reject Christ, thrown into the lake of fire, will be eternally separated from God. Nothing of the goodnesses of God that they might think today are the good things about nature or the good things about life or whatever, none of that will be there because they're all derived from the Father who created our world and gave us those good things. Heaven should be on our minds because the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we need to realize, I would like to contradict very strongly, the doctrinal view promoted by ultra-dispensationalists and what they're also called hyper-dispensationalists, who believe that the gospel of the kingdom differs from the gospel of, the kingdom of God differs from the kingdom of heaven. It's just not true. If you look at the scriptures, Jesus said the same things in different passages and applied both of them to it. And uh, there's, I can see why some people have sometimes been confused. I'm not, I'm not belittling them. You sometimes, in your mind, you think of a theory. Could it be this way? But that's not the way it is. And when you think about it, they also teach a very strange doctrine that the gospel that Paul preached was different from the gospel that Jesus preached. And that cannot possibly be true because Paul was teaching exactly the same thing. To the last chapter of Acts, Paul was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to go through some of those passages this morning. I, I, I'll try to go relatively quickly with some of these. I don't know that there'll be anything new that I'll say, but it might solidify for you uh, the fact that the reason the gospel is important and that we be 
concerned about it is because once we're thinking on things that are heavenly, we're automatically thinking about the gospel because the gospel is the kingdom of heaven gospel. So there are several verses, John the Baptist and, and Matthew 3, of course, some people would say he wasn't preaching the same gospel. He certainly was. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think one thing that we, and I don't know whether this would happen to people that heard this back you know, in those days or not, but I think we can hear the word kingdom and not think of a king. Somehow it's possible and we shouldn't do that. So when John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the point is <laughs> the king has come and you know, you're going to have to reckon with him. So we need to, whenever you hear the word kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, remember the kingdom is all about the king. Now in Mark chapter 1, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee. This is verses 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's preaching about himself. And he often did that. Sometimes he did it directly. Sometimes he did it somewhat indirectly. But saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That was the message of our Lord. And that is, in fact, our message. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, there, that, that deals with the Gospels, the four, the four Gospels. But there are 15 verses from Acts to Revelation that have the phrase kingdom of God in them. And none of them have kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is only in Matthew. So, of those, and then there's 14 verses that talk about entering the kingdom. And they're speaking about becoming saved. To get into the kingdom of God is to become saved. And this was preached all through Acts it, the concept is all through the epistles. It is New Testament church doctrine to preach the kingdom of God, or we can say the kingdom of heaven, because they are synonymous. Now, when it talks about entering the kingdom, it speaks of, in one verse, it talks about the final salvation of body, soul, and spirit. In Acts 14.22, where it was said, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That's the final entry, the glorious entry, uh, that you might have a, I'm trying to think of this verse on the spur of the moment, that you might have a more abundant entrance. Um, that, that is that idea. Once it's all done. However, you actually get into the kingdom without being in the physical kingdom at the beginning. And so it's often the, the salvation. Salvation, though, must be emphasized that salvation comes from the king. It's his kingdom, and he determines on what basis you can be there. Everybody in his kingdom is saved. And so he's the, he's the doorkeeper of it. He's the, he's the lawgiver. He's the one that decides what goes on in his kingdom and how you get into his kingdom. So this kingdom of heaven, or often called the kingdom of God, uh, in Acts 1.3 it says, to whom also he, that is Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus, after his resurrection, same theme, kingdom of God. And here is the risen king and telling them how you get in and how the kingdom functions, how you are to live within his rule, his, his kingdom. In Acts 8.12, the people in the city of Samaria, including, si including Simon the sorcerer, 
believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. So the apostles were preaching, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the kingdom of God, even in a city inhabited by half-breed Samaritans who were not considered true Jews. This was while Saul, future Paul, was still persecuting the church. And the reason I emphasize that is that there are those people who say that the gospel of the kingdom was only for the Jews. That's absolutely not true. The gospel of the kingdom is for everyone. And everyone is going to be judged by his response to the gospel of the kingdom. In Acts 14, uh, they when they, I'll just read from verse 21, and when they, Barnabas and Paul, had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and telling them, we must, through, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That passage that is saying about final salvation. And you know that often in scripture, the Bible speaks of salvation of you as a person. Now we are saved. And then in some places it says we shall be saved. And both of them are equally true. Anyone who is now saved will be saved. But there is a final salvation. None of us have our glorified bodies. None of us are removed from the presence of sin. Either that which indwells us or that which surrounds us. But the time will come when we will be. And that's heaven. And if we can think about heaven, we will, we will despise our own sin a whole lot more. And we'll be a whole lot more concerned about those who are going to go to one of the two places that are their eternal destiny. I'm going to skip a few of these verses that I have here. Um, Romans 4, 15 to 17. This is that passage about eating meats. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat or food, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, the kingdom of God here is defined as that which all of those who have willingly entered into the kingdom, submitted to the king, have. They have righteousness, they have peace, and they have joy in the Holy Ghost. So you can define the kingdom by its characteristics. Paul does it similarly when he says that the kingdom is not in word but in power. He's saying another characteristic of the kingdom is Holy Spirit power as opposed to blown up and big and impressive words. And those it's defining something by its characteristics. The kingdom of God is those who are saved but the kingdom of God is evidenced by those who have righteousness and joy and peace and actually Holy Spirit power. It doesn't mean necessarily something that is spectacular or attention-drawing. It means something that is powerful, that actually changes lives, where the gospel changes us from being people who love to do our own will to people who love to do God's will. That's powerful far more powerful than anything you can do on a stage with lights and with music and with all the other stuff that attempts to imitate the power and does affect human emotions massively. But it's still, like Paul said, and I, I had that verse here, I don't know what I did with it, but uh, the verse where he said, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. 
the scriptures talk about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they're not going to get it. Um, it can be inherited, but it's not automatic. Obviously, there is no universal salvation where everybody eventually gets into the kingdom of God. There's nothing similar to that in the scriptures. Instead, it's a very narrow road. And those who enter that road consciously do so. I'm convinced that God does not have any forced disciples or forced followers. That they are willing followers. I do believe God's Spirit works. I believe God's Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I take that word world to mean not the world of those who will be saved or the world of the elect, but the world of you know everybody that's in it. So God is convicting, but not everyone responds. And so those who don't inherit the kingdom of God, when it says that they are, and there's a whole huge list of the thieves and the covetous, the drunkards, the effeminate, the abusers of themselves and mankind, I'm not even reading them in order. It says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but you are looking at someone who is a thief. I have stolen. Okay? Now, there's a good chance. I, I kind of doubt that on this earth we would find anyone who was over a certain age, not a very big one, who had not stolen. And so, if we're all thieves, then who in the world is getting into this kingdom of God? And the answer is, you don't get in that way. You can only get in by Christ's righteousness. And he has to change you so that you no longer, by nature, are a thief. And the guilt of that is placed on the substitute, Jesus Christ. And then you have that entrance into the kingdom of God. But you no longer are. No longer does God see you as a thief. He sees you as a receiver of the righteousness of Christ. And Christ never stole anything. And he never, of course, did any of those other sins. So it is possible to inherit the kingdom of God. But it's going to require that we change our minds, that we repent in such a way that there's actually a change, that we trust in Christ. I describe trusting in Christ as resting in Him or relying on Him and committing yourself to Him. I think both of those are inherent in the way true faith is described in the Scriptures. And if you study the Gospel of John, you'll see there was some fake faith. People believed. Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized, but he was not saved. And so you, you have to figure out what was it that was deficient in that faith. It wasn't that he wasn't convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't that he was not convinced of the supernatural. He wasn't some kind of naturalist at all. Uh, it's, it's that he had not committed himself to Christ. He would take benefit from Christ, but he would not give self to Christ. And, and that's, that's a difference. That's, that's part of that coin of repentance and faith. And sometimes, often, we ourselves don't even know when we're dealing with someone, exactly what that faith is they have. We hope, we think, that it's the real thing. But we're not sure. We sure hope so. The biggest point, though, is that, that the gospel is the dividing criteria of whether people are going to end up in heaven or hell. Therefore, we should be thinking about heaven, concerned about them. This is a touching thing, and I, I, it's a precious memory of mine. My dad was in the nursing home. He just passed away in 2020 in April, and uh, one of the, near, near one of the last times that I saw him, um, my relatives told me that mom had come in and dad was crying. He had dementia, and he wasn't always all there. He always recognized us, but he wasn't 
he was sometimes in the 1960s, sometimes in the 1970s, and things like that. But he was crying, and she asked him, she said, why are you crying, Kent? And he said, I've been down at the end of the hall talking to those people, and they won't listen to me, and I'm just afraid they're going to go to hell. And he was out of his mind. You know, he, he couldn't get out of that bed. That's why he was in the nursing home. But he thought he was down there. And at least at that point in his life, he was concerned about heaven, concerned about hell. And, you know, who knows how the Lord interprets that? Does that count as one of his prayers that go in the vial? I don't know. Um, but, but that should be our heart's desire, is that somebody listen, that somebody care about the gospel and actually respond in a way that will get them into the kingdom of God. There's a day of judgment. In Matthew 10, Jesus is speaking, and he said, It will be more tolerable, in verse 15, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. I'm not going to go into the context. He's talking to the the folks that he was sending out, the 70. The fact is, there's a day of judgment coming. I don't know, you know... if you like those accountability sessions, but they are, they're, they're tough things to go through, whether it be at school or whether it be at work or whether it be at church or whether it be at whatever, it's tough to be in the judgment. And there's a judgment coming where the judge is omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly holy. And so we're not going to have anywhere to go but to Christ. No hope except for Christ. It's not as if there are sins we have done. I am convinced there are sins I have done that I have forgotten, that I probably never even confessed. I was probably saved over 25 years before I began to remember some of the things I had done as a kid. Now, do I think I got saved when I did? Yeah, I I certainly do think that I was saved 25 years earlier. I don't know why I didn't remember it, but I'm sure that had the Lord wanted to hold that against me, if I had not been saved, he would have. I think people are going to be surprised. I think they're going to be surprised by what they themselves did because they long since convinced themselves it didn't happen or simply forgot it. The judgment day is coming. And the judgment day is going to be, the for the unsaved, it's, it's it. You know, There is no turning back. And so if we can be thinking about heaven, we can have an impact on them. Uh John 1, 11 to 13, you know this probably all of you by heart. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Praise the Lord that there is an authority, uh, a, a right given, power given to become a son of God. Because if you're a son of the devil, there is no hope. However, while you still have breath, there still is hope. And while they still have breath, there still is hope. That they could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of his dear son. I want to focus a little bit now, and you might want to turn here, to Acts 13.46. Acts 13.46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. you realize how sad that was? 
He's talking to his own people, to other Jews. And he's saying, we tried. We told you the gospel, and you put it from you. That is just a way of saying you rejected it. You pushed it off. You didn't want it. And I also will point out to you, since I like words, that the word and, chi in the Greek, can often mean that is. And if you know that that word can often mean that is, it really can help you understand some passages in the Bible. I'm going to read this, telling you how I would interpret this. Seeing ye have put it from you, that is, have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. How does someone judge himself unworthy of everlasting life? He rejects the word of God. Man, that's bad news. That is the end. Now, Paul was, I think, trying to provoke them to jealousy. You won't take it, we'll go to the Gentiles. I'm sure, there were, of course, we all know there were some Jews who did believe. But a person, I don't know if there's somebody listening today that, to this point, has still rejected the word of God. If so, I want you to know that, according to the scriptures, it's not God that judged you unworthy of everlasting life. It was you yourself. And you did it. You did it when you rejected his word. I'm going to tell you a couple sad stories. Some of the saddest stories I've ever experienced. And that's because I would like to... I would, I would think that it's possible somebody's listening, somebody's here, that's not saved. And if I could shake you up a little bit, I would like to do that. Um, it's not because I believe that the primary appeal needs to be emotional, but I do believe that the appeal can be emotional. And if it gets you thinking, that would be a good thing. I have never experienced anything that I have found sadder than the funerals of unsaved people. And they tear me up. I'm emotional enough as it is. And then when you deal with somebody knowing that that person is already lifting up his eyes in hell, being in torments, it's not a good thing. Okay. And it's particularly painful when it's people that you've known. In uh, 2020, I participated in two funerals in Lithuania for two young men. 19-year-old, apparently, a young man who attended our church almost every Sunday, whose parents are members of our church, and who was warned, and who knew, apparently using drugs, probably hallucinating, jumped off a fourth-floor apartment building and died. not, you know, what do you do? You judged yourself unworthy. I want to say this. You may be judging yourself unworthy of eternal life right now. So when did that guy do that? The last time he heard the gospel. He judged himself unworthy of eternal life. Because why? He put it from him one more time. Not a good thing. Then right before we left, I guess it was, I don't remember when, maybe November. I don't know. A 20-year-old guy committed suicide. And uh, this is a young man who has a child, I would say, from maybe 10 to maybe in his teens, some had come to some of our evangelistic evenings. Um, he, he was always a very quiet, uh, reserved guy, but he had a temper like a volcano. In other words, he was real reserved until he was not reserved, and then he was just livid. And uh, he never would open up to us. He never allowed us into his life. I think he was very sad. He 
when we knew him, he had one last name, which was his real biological father's last name. And later, at the time of his death, he actually was buried according to his mother's new married name um, because they legally changed his name. A rough family background. Uh, he committed suicide, they said, probably because his girlfriend had jilted him. And uh, so he hung himself. But we walked into the, the little room and Lithuanian caskets are not shaped like American ones. They're not rectangular. They're, they're shaped more like the body in a way that they get broader at the uh, hips and then go down narrow at the feet and narrow at the head. And they're not as deep. So if you sit next to a casket, you look at the body laterally. So you see, and I saw where the rope had, where it had bled behind his ear. He judged himself unworthy. You know, you can have a terrible background. You can be from the worst family in the world. You could be from a, a, a wicked family who attends church. Okay? If you use that as an excuse to put away from you the Word of God, the final penalty of that falls on you. You know, I know there's pain. I know that kid was hurting. And, and, I, I'm just saying that, would to God, he had somehow been willing to get beyond enough of that to at least be concerned about something beyond this life. And what a, what a tragedy to put off, put it from you, don't want it. And then, in the grace of God, like Paul said, we, we turn to the Gentiles, you know, you, you tell people, and you want to be patient, and you should always be patient. And I would always prefer to err on the side of patience. Uh, but, you know, maybe there's somebody that will not put it from them, and that you need to tell it to. So, if you're here, and you're listening to this, you are not convinced, you're saved. I would challenge you not to put the Word of God away. The Word of God is the means by which you will be saved. So, if you don't fully understand it right now, make it your life purpose to figure it out. Because that is where the parting is between the lake of fire and eternity with God in heaven. Now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about rewards. The rewards of obedience to doing Christ's last command, go ye therefore. And this is, I said at the very beginning, I, this is not something I've studied a whole lot. I need to do a whole lot more on this. This is rather amazing. Why would God give us anything? I mean, other than the fact that he is very gracious and kind. But, okay, he gives all these good things that we enjoy in this world. And, and Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm looking forward to that. I really am curious about what it feels like to walk on pure gold. And I'm serious. I'm thinking bare feet, soft gold. I'll bet you it's better than the softest carpet. I don't know. I have a feeling maybe our footprints, will they be there momentarily? Just like memory foam? And then go out? I don't know. But I have a hunch that that place is going to be so amazing. Even in its physical elements. It has physical elements. The obvious blessing of heaven. It could be a desert with Jesus. Where Jesus is, tis heaven. <laughs> we have that song. And it would be okay. But obviously God has put a whole lot of attention into also the other elements of it. 
but then to reward us for something. We were always rebels. The only way we got into the kingdom is because he did it all. And then he wants to pay us for working for him. It's just kind of like somebody being too nice, too good to you, too kind. And that's what Christ is to us. The scriptures say in John 4, verse 36, and he that reapeth wa- and he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth life un- gathereth fruit unto life eternal he that reapeth and he talks that others have sown and so forth first corinthians 3 8 to 15 is the passage i'll just quote a few phrases here now he that planteth and he that watereth are one and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor For we are laborers together with God. Then down in verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest. That's scary too. This is talking about the Bema Seat. This is talking about the judgment of God's people. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Have we ever done things that looked like we were supposed to do them, but we didn't have the right motives? And... We didn't do it heartily as unto the Lord. We did it drudgingly as unto the pastor. You know, I mean, it happens all the time. Or you do something that you're supposed to do drudgingly as unto someone else. And all of these things are going to be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And he'd already talked about the the gold, silver, and precious stones. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. He shall receive a reward. He shall receive a reward. If any man's work abide. In other words, it's possible for you as a believer in Jesus Christ to metaphorically build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ in your service to him with gold, silver, and precious stones. And then, just by obeying God, you get rewarded for it. And God is using that as a motivation. It's really, really, really fun when people reward us for stuff. Okay, Employees like it a lot. All of us like it. It doesn't matter if it's kids at home. It doesn't matter who it is. You like to be rewarded. Even the, the dutiful husband that hangs up the mirror finally and gets a kiss. It's a reward. You know, His wife was wondering when he was going to get around to that. You know, and so the rewards are wonderful things for all of us. The fact that God rewards us is just grace upon grace upon grace. But it is motivational. So, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it heartily. And as unto the Lord. And then you are laying up the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Not for people. People are inherently involved in all of it, and our relationships with them are inestimably important. But it has to be towards the Lord. So that when one or another of them fall out, or there is a falling out of relationships, it still was for the Lord. And so, however it ends up, we know that we have the reward in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to just quote verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This is talking about the believers, and the bad there, in my opinion, does not mean evil. 
It means useful or not useful. And there are lots of things we do that just aren't useful. So as we keep our, our hearts set on that which is above, on heaven, it will help us to focus more on the things that are actually useful to the Lord, not to our reputation or to our objectives, but useful for Him in what He is trying to do. So do you want rewards? It is perfectly right, good, just, honest, and honorable to work for a reward. It's not that you're working to be saved. That was given freely to you. But you should work for rewards. I should. You should. We all should. It's perfectly right to wake up and say, Lord, what can I do today that will increase my rewards in heaven today? That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And the Lord uses it as motivation to us. Also, he talks about rewards for enduring persecution. Probably... This is coming. It's very glib. Actually, the closer it gets, the less I like to talk about it. Um, but rejoice, he says in Matthew 5. Blessed are ye when all men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Can you hear those guys singing in the prison? I've often thought about that. How much could I sing with blood coming out of my back? Uh, is that, I mean... I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I really wonder about that. But they did it. And it's obvious that they were under the control of the Holy Spirit. Your reward in heaven. Luke 6. It's a very similar, slightly worded different. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall speak, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did they did their fathers unto the prophets. So, my objective today was to motivate you, to encourage you to think about heaven. Think about heaven primarily, and I'm just wrapping it in those two main things. Primarily because the gospel decides whether people actually go to heaven or not. And so, it's really important. If you set your affections in heaven, you would like for there to be a bigger population of people there. And secondly, because there are amazing rewards for undeserved. I mean, I think that they're proportional. It's very clear that they're proportional. But it's not like God would have to give them to us. But he offers us rewards for service. And I would also like to encourage you with this, that remember that we're children. We are permanent children in God's eyes. And so... Don't feel as if you have to be perfect in order to get a reward. And don't give up trying for the reward just because you're not perfect. You know how we parents do it with our kids. We, yes, we would like perfection. But we still do reward them. And we reward them very highly just because they tried. And I don't know if you've heard the story of the little girl in the old days when shoes were made out of leather. And... Uh, when shoes were precious, almost as precious as could be, one of the most valuable possessions someone would have and would only have one pair. And uh, she saw that her mother's shoes were wet from being outside and she put them in the oven and completely destroyed them. But the gracious mother knew that the heart was right. 
could it be that the gold and the silver, the precious stones that are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and no other foundation could be laid, that it's, we know that it's not real gold. We know it's not real silver. It's not real precious stones. So what is it? Could it be the heart? The attitude in which you did it? Even when you didn't get it all right. Even when you got most of it wrong. But if your heart was for the Lord, I can't believe he would be less gracious than a loving parent. He certainly would reward you. So, as you serve the Lord and you fail, which you sometimes will do, remember, it's not so much what you accomplished as it is why you did it. And did you do it under His control or were you being self-willed? That's the key. And I think that will help you to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. So, my brothers and my sisters, let's be motivated to think about heaven. People we meet this week, the people we deal with, and in looking beyond to others, maybe finding an international community we could reach or, or a neighbor we can befriend, uh, whatever it is that we would be motivated to think about heaven and how what I do today can actually have an impact beyond the grave or the trumpet. In Jesus' name, amen.